Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. So this is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and we're here with Dr. Rob Wilgus, um, who has done a massive amount of large carnivore work on the effects of hunting on lions, wolves, grizzly bears, and many other topics. Uh, he's had a rough time recently speaking truth to power with, with his science, and we're here to learn more about that experience. But he's had a long and very auspicious and successful career uh, that's directly relevant to uh, imminent hunting of grizzlies in Yellowstone uh, and ongoing hunting of wolves as well. Um, so welcome, Rob. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been studying large carnivores like wolves and grizzlies and mountain lions and, and their prey for over 35 years. Maybe you can share a story uh, from your early life that sparked your curiosity about wildlife. Well, uh, geez, my curiosity about wildlife was my mother. She was, uh, we lived on the outskirts of Winnipeg. Uh, you know, we were the kind of the last house, and right across the street was forest and wetland and everything. And my mom would take me out, and we'd go bird watching and watch the deer and and uh, and lynx and stuff like that. And and so I was always in the bush, built a fort in the woods, and and just played in the woods. It was my sanctuary. Mm. So that's how it all started. And uh, eventually, I found out that one could actually make a career. Uh, living and working in the woods and so uh, I decided early on that I would uh, get into the wildlife profession while I was in high school I, I decided mm. that I would become a wildlife biologist mm. and you went on to study at uh, University of British Columbia yes. uh, with uh, a, a very prominent uh, scientist Fred Bunnell yes. uh, who you published a number of papers with maybe you could talk a little bit about how that experience shaped your view of science and research. Well, Fred was was a great uh, mentor. He really kind of shaped uh, where my lab went later. So when I was with Fred, uh, we worked uh, in what he called the, uh, uh, the Center for Applied Conservation Biology. So it was science and, and hard science, but uh, supporting conservation. And uh, so everything, you know, it wasn't esoteric. Uh, none of the research prog programs there were, you know, just kind of basic natural history or anything like that. Everything incorporated natural history and, and science and evolution, but it was all focused towards conservation. And so that's where I got my, uh, I guess, the, you know, the really applied aspect of my research. Mm -hmm. And so after uh, working with Fred for a number of years, and I saw how successful he was at using science in the political arena, to advance conservation biology. I decided to emulate that when I uh, ended up going to Washington State University and started the Large Carnivore Conservation Lab, which is basically an offshoot of Fred Bennell's Center for Applied Conservation Biology, except focused on large carnivores. Well, that lab seemed unique in this country anyway. I mean, with your focus and all the graduate students you had running around, you know, studying large carnivores, um, and a lot of your studies were on very rare ones, right. um, the mountain lions, wolves, grizzly bears, and such. 
And a lot of their scarcity has to do with extreme hostility on the part of Europeans when they hit the North American shores, uh, expressed through, you know, trapping and poisoning and hunting and, and in the case of wolves, even burning forests down where, sure. they, where they lived, which, which really sounds extreme now. But how important do you think laws like the Endangered Species Act, which are built on science, um, have improved conditions for some of those carnivores that have been so persecuted over the years? Well, enormously. You know, I don't think we would have grizzly bears here without the ESA. We wouldn't have them in the lower 48. We certainly wouldn't have wolves here in the, in the lower 48. Uh, it's worked for them. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out all that well for endangered mountain caribou, the, the last population. In, in northern Idaho that I worked on that population, it, it looks like it's been extirpated. <clears throat> but for the most part, uh, for large carnivores, it's been pretty darn successful. Mm -hmm. uh, again, the, the caribou is different because the population was very small to begin with. It was already in the demographic trap, you know, with uh, about 30 individuals or less. And once you get to, to that number, uh, the cards are not in your favor anymore. Chances are the population will be extirpated. Right. That's what's happened with caribou. Well, it's not unlike what's happening now with the Cabaniac grizzly bear or even the northern Selkirks uh, grizzly bear or, for sure, the North Cascades bears, uh, which not much is said about. But right. you, you were just speaking about the demographic trap of, of when you get to such low numbers, you're, you're sort of doomed. It, it's very difficult. I worked on the Selkirk Mountain grizzly bears for years and years. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a constant battle uh, to keep that population viable uh, because of the low numbers and the, the small area that's, that's reserved for them. Uh, but I'm hopeful that uh, eventually uh, we will uh, achieve uh, some degree of recovery for the, for the Selkirk Mountains grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. What's your take from your long experience with the Endangered Species Act in terms of, uh, of our evolution as a society and culture? Well, I think, uh, you know, when, when we instituted that law, it just shows that, you know, we're, we're progressive in thinking about other, other animals rather than just ourselves, kind of uh, taking kind of, a, again, a native Indian uh, approach to these kind of things, thinking that, oh, look, these animals deserve to be on this planet just as much as we do. So the ESA was very progressive. In, in formalizing that in legal means that, that animals have a right to exist mm -hmm. uh, in this country. So, you know, it's really progressive in that regard. And, uh, geez, I sure hope it stays. Yes, it's under serious threat more than it's been in many years. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's looking pretty bad. I'm, I'm very frightened that, that Congress will simply do away with it. And, uh, you know, and then that could be the end of, of grizzly bears and wolves and, and wolverines and lynx and, and all kinds of carnivores and other, other animals as well. I, I, I sadly agree with you. I, I think that has been the lifeline for all of those species for sure. so long. And for the majority of the American public who cares about the act, every time the public is polled about what they think, they support the act, and sure. yet we have a Congress who doesn't seem to care what most people think. No, no, it, it's, it's, it's pretty sad that, the, again, the vast majority of Americans are supportive of the ESA, but certain special interests aren't, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it's under assault. Mm -hmm. So in addition to studying uh, things like grizzlies and mountain caribou uh, and, and mountain lions and, and wolves in the United States and Canada, you've also done work in Europe 
in yes. the Pyrenees. Maybe you could compare uh, your experience uh, uh, in Europe with what you found in the U.S. Well, some of the things were pretty similar. I worked on recovery of uh, Pyrenees brown bears, which mm. is basically grizzly bears, same thing, Ursus mm. arctos. <clears throat> and we, we uh, examined that population to find out what was limiting it and what was preventing that population from recovering. And what we found was that the sex ratio was heavily skewed towards males. The population was very small. Uh, so we recommended that female bears be brought in from Slovenia uh, because they were the closest genetic match uh, to these bears. And uh, <clears throat> actually, uh, it, it was done. The European Union and the, the government of France and Spain said, sure, let's do this, and we brought in Slovenian uh, brown bears. And the population has since been uh, growing and thriving and recovering. So uh, that was a great success. Uh, I enjoyed uh, working on, on recovery of Pyrenean brown bears. Uh, a great deal. I didn't uh, enjoy so much living in Paris uh, for some <laughs> periods of time, but I really liked uh, living yeah. and working in the Pyrenees. Uh -huh. So that was a success in Europe. Uh, some other things that I've seen, though, in contrast, you know, to what we have here. For example, in Italy, uh, there's more wolves in, in the very small country of Italy than there is in the entire uh, lower 48. So uh -huh. they have considerably more wolves than we have. Uh, with a uh, much higher human density, uh, but at the same time, uh, there is no lethal control of wolves. There's, there's no need for it. They use non-lethal means, and it's been entirely successful. Right. Uh, so we could uh, learn from countries like Italy on, on you know, how to coexist right. with wolves. Uh, they have an extensive uh, program for cowboys in Italy, and uh, you know the cowboys are uh, kind of dressed up in. in fancy regalia and they're <laughs> they're very well respected uh, and and people want to be uh, cowboys in italy uh, right. and and so it's working uh, you know they have plenty of cowboys in italy and and most of ours are in hollywood so i think we could uh, follow their lead <laughs> that's great that's uh, yes there i think is a lot to to, to learn from from Europe, I mean, they got 6,000 brown bears in Romania, sure. and, and we whine in the lower 48 states about, you know, 1,500, 1,800 brown bears in isolated populations, and, and yet here they are, they've been coexisting with these animals for thousands of years. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing that, yeah. uh, you know, you, you can see in, in Europe uh, large carnivores and people can coexist, mm -hmm. yeah, even in, in these much smaller countries which much higher human densities. Right. Uh, all it takes is a little bit of thought and scientific guidance and then following through on that scientific guidance rather than ignoring it. Right, Wh which is everything. Yeah. I mean, speaking of which uh, and ignoring scientific guidance uh, is um, a question about a lot of work that you've done on the science about the impact of hunting on livestock-related conflicts with right. people and large carnivores. And you reported in your findings in some of the most prestigious scientific journals there are. Uh, and what you found was really counterintuitive, that livestock depredation tends to increase with hunted large carnivore populations. In some cases, hunting doesn't decrease, but actually increases local densities of, of local populations of carnivores. Maybe you can explain how that is. Yeah, sure. Most of these carnivores are territorial and self-regulating. For example, my work on cougars with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife that we, we did for some 15 years, uh, we found that when you uh, remove a resident adult male cougar uh, through hunting, 
then you have a vacant territory, and then typically uh, three younger males from adjacent areas will eventually, uh, will quickly actually move in into the area. And uh, so instead of dealing with one older uh, male cougar, and, and cougars don't get old by causing trouble, mm -hmm. uh, you've got three younger males and, uh, and these, uh, you know, research has shown that it's the younger males that typically prey on livestock. Uh, so basically what we found was, was that removing these male cougars uh, tripled the risk of livestock depredation. Indeed, we found that throughout the state of Washington uh, that removing uh, cougars in excess of 12, 12 to 14 percent per year uh, resulted in really high livestock depredation rates. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what we did in Washington State, uh, because of that, we limited uh, cougar mortality to 14% or less in any game management unit to prevent this immigration of young males from pouring into any mm -hmm. given area. And the livestock depredations have dramatically decreased as a result of that program. Mm -hmm. So we found that, wow, a social disruption of carnivores uh, resulted in increased livestock depredation, increased complaints, and increased depredations on pets. <clears throat> so as a result of that work on cougars that was really successful in, in reducing, you know, cougar complaints and livestock depredations and so on, uh, then I was appointed by the state legislature uh, to be the, uh, uh, the lead on uh, wolf livestock uh, problems in the state and begin a research program there to see if we could find the same type of answers, uh, find out what's going on, uh, why depredations occur and how we could mitigate them and, and reduce them. Mm -hmm. And uh, my initial research uh, found uh, kind of the same kind of result, but for, for different reasons. Uh, it, it appears that when you're, you know, fracturing a pack, let's, you know, not if you kill the entire pack. Of course, if you kill the entire pack, there won't be any further depredations from that pack. And we showed that. Uh, what we found, though, that if, if you're, again, if you're killing wolves at greater than 25% per year, in other words, you're removing a quarter of the population, mm. uh, the depredations will go down because the maximum growth rate of wolves is 25% per mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. But if you're killing them at less than that rate, and you, you can't kill them at that rate uh, indefinitely because, you know, they'd simply be extirpated. Mm -hmm. uh, we found that if you're killing them at less at that rate, you're fracturing the pack. Mm -hmm. And so you have an alpha male, alpha female, or the breeding pair, and they suppress breeding in the rest of the pack. Mm -hmm. Well, if the pack is fragmented, uh, you could end up with two breeding pairs instead of one, mm -hmm. or sometimes even three breeding pairs instead of one. And our research and research of others have shown that breeding pairs are the wolves that are responsible for the vast majority of livestock depredations mm -hmm. because they're tied to the den site. Mm -hmm. They can't follow their natural prey like deer and elk as they migrate. Right. Uh, they're, they're just stuck at the den site, and if livestock are at the den site, the wolves will take them if that's the only prey available. Uh, so the explanation there was, at least my interpretation, was this pack fragmentation could result in increased breeding pairs and increased livestock depredation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, uh, those, those results uh, were not well received mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the, political, the Republican political environment of Washington State. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you can describe what happened next, uh, that uh, in, in how um, your work was essentially attacked for the findings that you, you know, simply came up with from 
an examination of an immense amount of research in your own. Right, yeah. So I was, you know, I was mandated to do this research, so I did it. I reported it and, uh, and published a paper on that. <clears throat> as soon as that paper was published, uh, one of my uh, greatest adversaries, uh, Representative Joel Kratz, in Washington State. He's been trying to shut down my lab for some 10 to 15 years. Well, he jumped on this and, and did not like that paper at all and contacted my university and, and demanded that the university do something uh, that I'm publishing this type of stuff in scientific journals that the university stopped me. So I was investigated by the university for uh, <clears throat> a misappropriation of funds in that particular incident in, in publishing that paper. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I was exonerated by the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. They contacted my university and said, no, in fact, we contracted Dr. Wilgus to do this exact type of work. Mm -hmm. And he's doing what he should be doing, mm -hmm. which is publishing his scientific uh, research results that he's doing in collaboration with us. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was uh, saved in that case. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, the, the, the efforts continued. Uh, later on, uh, Representative Kretz uh, demanded uh, that, that my research paper be uh, examined for scientific misconduct. He, mm -hmm. he thought that, well, th this is bad and th this paper has to be retracted or something has mm -hmm. to be done with me. And, uh, and again, so I was examined uh, for scientific misconduct. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the Department of Statistics at Washington State University, mm -hmm. and they reanalyzed my data, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, at least to me, unsurprisingly, came to the exact same conclusion mm -hmm. that uh, increased mortalities of wolves were indeed followed by increased livestock depredations the following mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. and that has been uh, published last year. Uh, however, no one seems to be speaking about that, that, that I was exonerated mm -hmm. and, uh, and that my results were replicated and uh, the results have simply been buried. Mm -hmm. You had another part of that research which was, uh, I thought, really interesting and important in places like here in Yellowstone and Glacier and anywhere that livestock and uh, wolves coexist, and that is that simple tools like fencing sheep and closely tending livestock with riders and such uh, help considerably to reduce conflicts. Why don't you, you think those tools are used more? That there, there seems to be absolutely <clears throat> bulletproof science, just like your other science, on that point. Well, for example, one, one simple one. <clears throat> so I work with 10 different uh, ranchers who cooperated with me, and, and we follow 10 different livestock herds. And uh, for the most part, now all those 10 ranchers, because they cooperated with me and the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, were using best practices. Mm -hmm. So we monitored some 800 livestock. We radio collared 800 livestock from those 10 ranches over a period of two years. Mm -hmm. And we found that there were, there were zero uh, livestock mortalities due to wolves, mm -hmm. okay, when these ranches were using best practices. Mm -hmm. and, and for example, one of those would be <clears throat> Uh, uh, simply keeping livestock away from the immediate vicinity of a den site or a rendezvous site, because again, we know that breeding pairs and livestock on the den sites uh, sometimes leads to livestock depredations. Uh, so these ranchers would simply, if we identify the, where the den site is, and say, well, you know, you should not graze in this particular uh, pasture mm -hmm. and uh, move to another pasture within your allotment mm -hmm. or you know perhaps even move to another allotment and uh, and they did and so we didn't see any uh, livestock depredations mm -hmm. at all 
Uh, in another case, there was a, a rancher who uh, refused to, to cooperate with me and to cooperate with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. And uh, for example, he, he placed uh, salt blocks uh, in the immediate vicinity of the den site. And uh, the livestock, of course, were then right on top of the wolves. And, uh, and then the wolves started preying on livestock eventually. Uh, any other rancher would have simply uh, moved his, his cattle and his livestock away from the den site. This rancher refused to do so and, uh, and did not remove his livestock or the salt blocks. Uh, until uh, until after the wolf kill program began, and so finally the lives uh, the salt blocks were removed uh, because of fear of of uh, actually capturing cows mm -hmm. in the leg hole traps that were set for wolves. Oh. And uh, mm. and uh, but the livestock remained, and uh, and that pack that profanity peak pack was wiped out. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, again, the the vast majority of ranchers that I dealt with were cooperative and used best practices and we had no problems uh, but uh, this one particular rancher uh, man he really caused a, a great deal of uh, mm -hmm. consternation and and their you know the, the killing of the profanity peak pack as well as two other packs as well mm -hmm. same individual has been responsible for the elimination of three packs wow. uh, I'm, I'm told that stunning. out of uh, I think it's 18 wolves killed in Washington State, uh, this individual is responsible for 15 of the 18 being killed. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like despite um, the, the upholding of your research by other people who have examined your data, you know, which you've described, um, the science that you produced really became weaponized by uh, certain state legislators and certain administrators at Washington State University right. to sort of basically crush you. I mean, you had a gag order at one point. Your research money was taken away. Eventually, your, you know, eventually the the this uh, large carnival research lab, which was you know one of the preeminent labs. I mean, there was nothing like it in the country. Was shuttered. And yeah. uh, why? I mean, it's Washington. It's not Wyoming. I mean, there are liberal people in people who care about why. Why did this happen? Yeah, that's a that was a strange story. But uh, again, uh, Representative Joel Kratz has been trying to shut down my lab for some 10 to 15 years, and he had been unsuccessful. He complained to the university for a number of a number of times, and, and complained to my university president, uh, Elson Floyd. Uh, trying to get me fired, trying to shut down my lab for uh, what I published in on cougars and and bears and and indeed wolves. Uh, but what had happened then was, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, President Floyd uh, passed away, and a, a new president came into Washington State University, hmm. and uh, and Representative Kratz contacted the new president and and threatened that he would withhold funding for Washington State University's new medical school unless the university uh, got rid of me and shut me up. <clears throat> and the new president, uh, unlike President Floyd, immediately succumbed to this threat. It's unfortunate. I think it was a hollow threat because I don't think any uh, you know, le representative from Eastern Washington is really going to vote against a medical school in Eastern Washington. Uh, I don't. I, th I think it was a hollow threat. Right. But the uh, new president apparently didn't. And so uh, uh, I was examined then for uh, illegal use of state resources. They tried to fire me for that. 
and I was exonerated by that by the Board of Trustees. And uh, they also uh, charged me then with illegal political lobbying, uh, contacting uh, politicians, but that was part of my job as a state, uh, uh, you know, lead researcher for, for wolf livestock. I had to produce things like annual reports, and, of course, politicians would get copies of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, again, I was exonerated by that as well <clears throat> by the, uh, the Board of Regents. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the Washington State University... Uh, publicly denounced me and my work. Uh, again, uh, Representative Kretz demanded that they do so, mm -hmm. and so they did, and they destroyed my reputation. And uh, and basically, uh, in the end, uh, my lab was shut down, mm -hmm. and uh, all the uh, different graduate students and and scientists and wildlife technicians and and interns. So, you know, we we have a perhaps as many as sometimes uh, 20 people working in the lab. Mm -hmm. uh, they were all let go, and the lab is now uh, shut down. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I reached a legal agreement with the university uh, that I would indeed resign. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they had to pay me out. I wasn't going to simply go away for, for free like they wanted me to do. They couldn't fire me, mm -hmm. uh, but we finally agreed to part ways. Mm -hmm. Well, as news over the last couple of years uh, reached ears of, you know, around the country, if anybody who's interested in large carnivores were getting uh, news about your, um, your fate and the deteriorating situation, uh, and it sent chills down the spine of a lot of people. Uh, I mean, if such terrible things could happen to Dr. Rob Wilgus, you know, at the height of his career, a scientist and such, you know, who's published in the most prestigious journals there are, uh, no other research uh, studying controversial species or carnivores was safe, nor were principles of free speech or academic freedom. In your challenge of the behavior of Washington state administrators and, and these state legislators that you described, did you feel that you were carrying the weight of these broader principles on your shoulders? Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, science is, I like to say, science is my religion. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, that's, that's what I do. I, I, I conduct science and I report the results uh, regardless of what they are. And uh, these results, uh, you know, uh, certain uh, uh, state representatives didn't like the results. They made that uh, perfectly clear to the university. Unfortunately, you know, universities are supposed to be uh, the last bastions of academic freedom and scientific truth. Mm -hmm. and, and so usually, you know, they're not influenced by po immediate politics like that. And, and they're supposed to stand independently uh, in the name of scientific truth. And in this case, uh, the university didn't. It simply caved in mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to political pressure. And, uh, you know, that's something different. I've not seen that done before mm -hmm. uh, by a university. And I think other people were, were shocked uh, nationally mm -hmm. uh, and internationally. That it, that people were simply shocked that, that a university would cave in uh, so quickly and so easily to special interest groups, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like this uh, state representative and, the, and the, you know, the livestock people that he represented. So that was a, a real shame, and indeed, you know, a lot of the other scientists at Wazoo uh, were felt to, to be muzzled. Mm. Uh, you know, my colleagues wouldn't even talk to me in the halls uh, because 
uh, you know, to be seen talking with me would, would have branded them right. as well. Right. And uh, they were all afraid for their jobs as well. So okay. it was pretty terrible. My grad students were terrified mm -hmm. and they were threatened that they, uh, they wouldn't get their degrees. Uh, they were threatened that they had to shut up, that they couldn't talk to the media, that they couldn't talk to the public, and indeed that they couldn't even submit scientific papers to journals uh, without the Dean of Agriculture uh, vetting those papers. Oh and, and so it put a huge chill on not only my lab, uh, but the entire university. And mm -hmm. I think the reputation of Washington State University has been uh, irretrievably damaged uh, because of what they did. Mm -hmm. Well, getting back to our earlier conversation about your work on mountain lions, where you applied a lot of the same, you know, approaches to that work, um, finding that hunting had adverse impacts above a certain level on depredations, um, and went to the uh, uh, political entities, including the governor of Washington, and they said, great. Uh, we're going to implement this. Sure. We're going to apply this as state policy. Right. So that it's a it's a another large carnivore, with a very different result in the same state. Right. Using you know your work, applying you know similar approaches. What explains the difference? Do you think? between what happens with wolves, and, in this case, and uh, mountain lions? Well, the, the mountain lion work, I think, uh, first and foremost, most people don't hate mountain lions, mm -hmm. and a lot of people actually hate wolves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and wolves have also been much more politicized than mountain lions. Uh, doing research on mountain lions is, is often simply doing research on mountain lions and reporting your results yeah. and, and ways on mitigating and, and preventing conflicts, so that was fine. <clears throat> but uh, doing research on wolves... I found was completely different than the research I'd done on grizzly bears and cougars. Uh, everything with wolves was political. Uh, wolves were basically the third rail. I was warned uh, by a few other scientists who had studied wolves, mm -hmm. and, and they told me that, uh, Rob, if, if you study wolves, it's going to be your last job. You're either going to get fired or you're going to retire uh, with, uh, you know, severe stress-related issues. And I, I laughed them off, and I said, nah. Uh, you know, I've worked on grizzly bears and, and black bears and cougars and have been enormously successful for some mm. 35 years. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm going to survive this. <clears throat> but indeed, they were right. Uh, the politics was completely toxic. If, if you, it, it didn't matter what you said about wolves, you couldn't win. Mm -hmm. And if you reported the scientific truth on wolves, uh, you're pretty much dead. The Republicans just nailed me big time for that. And uh, they were willing to nail the university for that. It was a scorched earth policy. Mm -hmm. People wanted wolves dead, and that's all there was to it. Mm -hmm. So scientific truth, academic freedom, all of that stuff just went out the window. Mm -hmm. What do you think it will take to change that dynamic? Because there are, you know, the majority of the American public loves wolves. They just don't happen to live in agricultural lands in eastern Washington or Wyoming or Montana. Right. Well, I'm, I'm hoping anyway that, that my scientific results, we're publishing that stuff now. Yeah. Uh, now that, uh, you know, some people are uh, assured that they won't lose their jobs uh, because of publication, uh -huh. uh, we're publishing that. And, uh, and I'm hoping that the results will show, you know, that we've shown that wolves and livestock can coexist uh, using best practices. And uh, that the indeed the uh, wolf livestock losses are much less than what people feared. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we found that 
you know, wildfire and logging trucks and mastitis and all these other things accounted for way more uh, livestock deaths than wolves. Right. Uh, livestock deaths due to wolves was three out of 1,000. Mm -hmm. So uh, one third of 1%. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a real minimal thing. Uh, hopefully these results will get out and people will understand uh, that it's all been really overblown. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, it's not nearly, uh, in reality, it's not nearly a bigger problem. No one's going to go out of business uh, mm -hmm. because of wolf predation on livestock. Mm -hmm. uh, that's simply not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you, the losses even are minuscule uh, mm -hmm. compared to all the other losses. Mm -hmm. So hopefully education makes a difference. That's all I can do. Right. Well, and so I'm getting the sense here. Uh, I wasn't sure um, when, we, when we met this time where your mood would be that, you know, maybe completely defeated and I'm just, you know, getting out of it. But that's not what I'm hearing, that you're still publishing papers and you're, you've got a, a, an insight on the role of education and, and, and how to persevere. And is that where you are? Yeah, I think science ultimately prevails. You know, <laughs> one politician used to jokingly call me Galileo. <laughs> You know, and they, you know, they, they what to him? put no. me in the tower and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, Galileo was denounced. Yeah. But eventually, uh, you know, the scientific truth uh, that he found came out. And I yeah. think the same will happen here. Yeah. Science will win in the end. It, it takes much longer uh, than what we hope. We, we wish that, you know, you could simply do the science and report it and policies will change. Uh, but it's a slower process than that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, again, the science has to come out. Uh, it has to be replicated, it has to be shown over and over again, and we're showing that now. Mm -hmm. uh, then you have to educate the public, and then the public has to respond to the politicians. Mm -hmm. So basically, it, it's all about political change, and that takes a while. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, there will be uh, some, some political change, and, uh, and politicians will eventually accept the scientific truth of what we found. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, shifting gears, you know uh, that here in Yellowstone we're facing, for the first time in 43 years, uh, the prospects uh, within a month or so of a grizzly bear hunt. Right. And you've certainly done your share of research on grizzly bears, and you've spoken up about this. Uh, and with the exception of a tiny sliver of land around Grand Teton Park where hunting is will be banned by the state of Wyoming, right. hunting will occur everywhere outside the boundaries of Yellowstone and Grand Teton Parks. Right. What do you think the implications are for both grizzlies and for how we manage wildlife in this country? Right. Well, I'll, again, I'll focus on some of the work that I've done on bears before. Mm -hmm. So I studied uh, grizzly bears in, in Kananaskis Provincial Park, which you could think of as, as similar to our national park here. Mm -hmm. And what we found that, that when, when bears were killed outside of the park, so these are resident male bears, for example, and they live part of the time in the park, and they're fathers of cubs in the park. Mm -hmm. And when they were shot outside of the park, uh, those males were replaced by new immigrant males, and those new immigrant males from elsewhere killed the cubs. Mm -hmm. And so that we found that hunting of bears outside of the park resulted in the deaths of cubs inside the park. Right. And, and so the idea there was what we needed was a buffer zone, a no hunting buffer zone around that park. Mm -hmm. and, and then later on, we suggested uh, seven different grizzly bear preserves 
uh, for uh, for uh, British Columbia, mm -hmm. uh, protected bear populations, and indeed in that case we established no hunting boundaries around those reserves so that uh, protected park bears would not be killed. Mm -hmm. uh, I find it inconceivable uh, that we don't have such a no hunting boundary around Yellowstone Park because hunting of bears outside of the park will directly kill bears inside the park. Mm -hmm. These are park bears that are leaving the park for a period of time. They're simply going to be shot. Mm -hmm. And if you're killing male bears, uh, park bears, uh, their cubs will be killed because mm -hmm. of infanticide. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is a terrible thing. It's an assault mm -hmm. on protected park bears. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't really, you know, because their home ranges are so large, mm -hmm. these park bears uh, spend a considerable period of time outside of the park, and they're simply not going to be protected anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the American people will completely disagree with this. I think everyone wants Yellowstone park bears to be protected, mm -hmm. and they don't want them to be shot, but mm -hmm. they are going to be shot, and this is a travesty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we saw a very tragic uh, episode in the recent months having to do with the superintendent of Yellowstone Park who was standing up for precisely what you were speaking to, a buffer zone around the park. And also, he was absolutely firm on Wyoming not decreasing the size of the population. Wyoming is all about um, reducing uh, the size of what m most scientists feel is an already too small population, sure. as well as isolated. And so here we have Yellowstone Park superintendent basically getting canned yeah. um, for speaking up not just for bears but for bison and, and other wildlife and uh, sending a chilling message to anyone in the Park Service uh, sure. who wants to stand up for science or simply the park resources. Right, just telling the truth. It, it's similar to what happened to me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, telling the truth and expressing uh, those facts results in one losing one's job mm -hmm. in, in the current political climate. I mean, it's terrible. We're in an anti-science period right now. Mm -hmm. We're in a period of, of uh, alternative facts, although there actually aren't, there isn't such a thing, and a fact is a fact. You can't have alternative facts. But mm -hmm. people are talking about alternative facts, and if you state the scientific facts, you end up losing your job. And, uh, and protected park bears are being killed because of it, and the will of the people, the American people, is being uh, completely ignored uh, because of it. And uh, it's just in a, a real tragedy right now. I think we're in a, a super critical period where, uh, you know, the wildlife and, and the American people are, are being downtrodden. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Disrespected as to their own values. So if you were talking to, like, the younger you, um, mucking around the woods and having fun in the uh, land outside of Manitoba and looking at critters, and, or, or talking to young uh, students who are thinking about getting into research and science, um, what would your recommendations be? Well, my recommendations to my students and, and students... Uh, you know, undergrad students, grad students, and all that thing was always saying, you know, just report the facts, mm -hmm. uh, follow scientific truth, uh, regardless of what they are, and that as a scientist, you have to do that. Uh, that's your job, otherwise you shouldn't be a, a scientist, you shouldn't be a wildlife biologist. Mm -hmm. And so I've always followed that and, and, and told, you know, my, my students to do that. Uh, I guess I've had, you know, and it always worked. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, prior to this uh, wolf incident and my losing my job over it. Uh, so I've, I've given it some greater thought, thinking, well, 
what do you do when you know telling the truth results in your being canned? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know the scientist in me says, well, you still have to tell the truth mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise you're not doing your job as a scientist. You should be doing something else. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the emotional part of me uh, tells students. Uh, Tell the best you can without losing your job. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, that's a real conundrum. Mm -hmm. And it's a conundrum that my students have had to live with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a full reporting and full timely reporting and, uh, and one's career. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that, we didn't have to worry about six things in the past, but, but now you have to. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know exactly what my recommendations are. I'm still thinking on that, mm -hmm. uh, what a young person should do. It was kind of okay for me to lose my job because I'm 61 years old, so I was pretty close to retirement anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, that would be an entirely different situation uh, for someone who's in their mid-20s or mid-30s mm -hmm. and to lose their job and then be blacklisted mm -hmm. uh, like I was and, and become a pariah and then no longer have a career. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a whole different ball game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really don't have an answer for that right now. Yeah, and the stress is enormous. I mean, even for you at, at your age, I mean, the, the the stress of being under constant attack and never knowing what chunk of flesh is going to they're going to try to take out next. That's got to be that's got to have a huge toll. And and students who are facing that, yeah, that's got to be very very difficult for them. Yeah, who, it, who are deeply interested in the future of these animals. Sure, and, you know, it, yeah. it was really tough. It, it was tough on me and it'd be tough on anyone who's going through that. You go through stress and you lose your salary. Of course, you know, I lost my summer salary mm -hmm. uh, for a number of years. I lost all my travel funds and so on and so forth. My children had to pay for it. And, you know, they, they could no longer attend university, that type of thing. So my whole family uh, suffered because right. of this. Right. And, and people see that. Mm -hmm. And then they think, do, do I want to go there? Yeah, you know, I could tell you right now, both of my daughters at one time expressed wanting to be wildlife biologists, and both of them no longer want to do so. Uh, that's telling. Yeah, it, yeah. it's real sad. That, it is sad. That, you know, that my daughters who wanted to be biologists are no longer interested because they saw what happened to me, and they saw what happened to them as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's real sad. Yeah, yeah. Probably followed in your footsteps around the woods and all kinds of things. And you enjoy bet. It. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> since they were, Didn't have a choice. <laughs> since they were little kids, they were right. up in grizzly country uh -huh. before they could even walk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what a great way to grow up, and so they'll find another path. But, yeah, uh, they'll, they'll be doing the outdoors, but uh, they just won't be doing it professionally uh, mm -hmm. on the uh, whims of some politician. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for taking the time. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Rob Wilgus, uh, formerly of uh, Washington State University and uh, one of the world's experts on wolves, mountain lions, and grizzly bears. And thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.